Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, whatever time of day it is when you may tune in. This is Minister Kay Mortimer with Covenant Truth Ministries, and this is today's episode 201 of our Truth Tidbits as we continue reading through the scriptures this year. God bless you, and I, I pray that these are a blessing to you and that you also are reading the scriptures yourselves and growing in the Lord as his disciple. We are in the book of Romans, and today we want to tackle a major feat, and that is to take the whole of chapter 7 of the book of Romans. So we will see if that can be completed or not, but that is my goal. So I'd like to start out by reading Romans chapter 7 first. Romans chapter 7, verse 1. Or do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. So then, if, while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law so that she is no adulteress, though she has married another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law, for I would not have known covetousness unless the law has said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment, which was to bring life, I found to bring death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it killed me. Therefore the law is holy, and the commandment holy and just and good. Has then what is good become death to me? Certainly not. But sin, that it might appear sin, was producing death in me through what is good, so that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, Nothing good dwells, for to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. For the good that I will to do, 
I do not do, but the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Now, if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind, and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. Now, this seems almost contradictory. It seems difficult to understand. So let's try to break this chapter down because he's really dealing with one overall arching theme in this chapter and it will connect to the next chapter. So let's go back and understand just briefly our review. We've learned in chapters one through five about everyone being a guilty sinner before a holy God needing a savior, and God has provided that salvation, and we become justified by faith in God's provision for our salvation in the finished work of Jesus Christ. His blood was enough, he paid our death penalty, and when we believe in that, we are justified by faith alone. So in chapter 6, he begins to teach us in chapter 6 through 8 how this plays out in our daily lives. What does it mean now that we've become born again, now that we've been justified by faith alone? What, what does that mean in our life? How does that change our lives? What difference does it make in our lives on a daily basis? So chapter 6 dealt primarily with the theological term of sanctification, and it is God's will for sanctification. We know that. We see that. And notice this in chapter 6. In chapter 6, we learned about how we should reckon ourselves, conclude that we are, in fact, dead to sin, and now that we are alive to God, and we need to present ourselves, including our bodies, and the things that we can do to serve the Lord to Him and no longer to our fleshly carnal nature that would fulfill the laws and the, the lust of our flesh and the things that are evil. He says in verse 22, But now, having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. So if you'll remember, we talked about being set free from sin and its lust. We have been delivered from the power of sin, and now we have a new power source. We have talked about becoming slaves of God, that bond slave, that beautiful slave that says, I don't want to serve any other master because you are good. You're a good master. I want to be a pierced ear slave and serve you forever. So that's what he's talking about here. We are called, he says, to holiness. Holiness just simply means that we live a life that is set apart to God. It's not our own and it's not common. We are the called out ones. I want to read you a couple of other places 
that help understand this point. First, I'd like to read 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3 through 8. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter, because the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also forewarned you and testified. For God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who has also given us his Holy Spirit. Paul is telling us that God wants us to live a sanctified life, a holy life, a life that is set apart. He has called us to holiness. Then Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14 also says this, pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So this years ago might have been taken to mean external things, the way we dressed, the way we looked, the things we would not wear or would wear, you know, the places we would or would not go. And that becomes an element of it. But True holiness is concerned about the intent of the heart. And out of that holy heart, out of that holiness inside, that desire for holiness, that desire to please the Lord and honor Him, out of that, it will manifest in the choices that we make in our clothes, in our places we go and don't go, etc., etc. So it's coming from within. The motivation is coming from deep within the heart of a bond slave, of a person that loves the Lord and wants to serve Him and wants to please Him. Just like a couple that, you know, a, a man and a woman that fall in love and, and are trying to, you know, woo each other and, and court or date or whatever you want to call it. And, and they're drawing closer together. They want to please each other. It's that kind of motivation. It comes from a motivation of love. But nevertheless, we are called to holiness. And out of that love for the Lord, the Holy Spirit of God will work that work to draw us to a, a place of holy living, sanctified living. Praise be to God. We also saw at the end of chapter 6 that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. And it's interesting how he compares here and in Romans chapter 4, verses 3 through 5. You'll see this comparison as well. He's almost contrasting wages, meaning something you've earned and are owed because of the choice you made and the things that you did, the one that you served, versus the gift that is freely given to all who will simply believe in Jesus, to all who will love him. He gives a gift. We cannot earn it. It's a gift of God's grace. Praise be to God. And so chapter 6, in essence, tells us that after being justified by faith, 
sanctification is becomes a natural part of our life, and it is expected. Our choice was stressed in how we are to present ourselves to the Lord and not to sin, etc., and that we need to conclude and reckon ourselves to be actually dead to sin, and rather that we become a bond slave, a bond servant, a pure steer slave of Jesus Christ. So in chapter 7, Paul is going to deal with the reality of this. Is it easy to do that? Is it easy to live a Christian life? Is now everything peachy keen and everything's going to turn to gold before us and all is going to be a paved easy way? Is it going to be easy peasy and smooth sailing from now on? The old is dead and gone forever. So now, you know, how, how does that play out in the daily life of a Christian? So I want to dispel the notion that Come to Jesus, everything's going to be wonderful and good now. That's not necessarily true. That does not mean that there are not blessings in life, but there are also many trials and troubles for a couple of different reasons. One is that now you've become, in a sense, a target of the enemy. You used to serve Satan. Now you've become like a threat to him. Now you've become a part of of his adversarial camp, and he's going to be opposed to you. So he's going to try to pull you back into sin. He's going to try to to enslave you again. He's going to try to tempt you. He's going to try to deceive you, etc. And the second thing is because God will allow certain things in our life as training ground, as testing ground, and as character building and development. Take a, take a newborn baby, for instance. Now, in the first little bit, that newborn baby has to have everything done for it. It has to be fed. It has to be changed. It has to be loved, hugged, drawn near. It needs that. There's a developmental stage and phase where it's got to be pampered and cared for. But there comes a point as the child develops that that child has to learn to struggle a little bit. I'm not saying in meanness. I mean, just for instance, learning to crawl, for instance, learning to walk. There's bits of struggle in that. It's not always easy peasy. You know, when a child gets older, learning to ride a bicycle, it's not easy peasy. There's a training process. There's a learning process. And through that process, there might be a little bit of falls and bumps and bruises and things like that 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 occur. But it's all teaching and training, and God is with us at all times. And he will not allow us to endure more than what he knows we can endure. Same thing with Job. We see that evident in Job. God knew before he allowed those things to tackle Job that Job would stay true. Now, did Job struggle through it? Oh, yes, he did. And you can read the book of Job and you can see where there were times where he was depressed and he said, you know, curse be the day that I was even born. You know, he talks, he, he struggled through it. It wasn't an easy task, but God knew that throughout that process, he would come through it and it would be beautiful in the end. Just like the caterpillar turning to the cocoon, uh, turning to the butterfly in the cocoon. The cocoon is that struggle, that pressing, that hard place, but it takes the 
the ugly caterpillar and turns it in to the beautiful butterfly in the end. So it's not easy. So here, Paul is really going to focus on primarily the struggle within our natural bodies because we still have the presence of sin. That's what we need to understand as Christians. We've been delivered from the penalty of sin through the blood of Jesus Christ because he paid our death sentence and we no longer have to pay that as a Christian. He paid the penalty for our sin and his blood alone paid it and we believe that. So he delivered us from the penalty of sin. He has also delivered us from the power of sin. He unplugged us from that old power source and now we're plugged into the power source of his grace through the power of the Holy Spirit. So we have been delivered from the penalty of sin and from the power of sin, but we have not yet been delivered from the presence of sin. Sin is still in the world. Just look around. People hate each other all over the place. There's violence, there's crime, there's religiosity and people thinking legalism is the way to go. There's immorality all over the place. The presence of sin is still here with us. So how do we deal with that? Well, that's what chapter seven of Romans really deals with is that struggle because it is a struggle. It is a daily walk. And as we learn to do what is right as we learn to shed the old nature and live more according to the spirit of the living God by his grace, then it becomes easier. But there's always going to be a struggle and there's always going to be temptation. So Paul is going to address that here. So he's going to address temptation and the struggle of the old man versus the new man the old nature versus the new nature. It's a very real ongoing battle. So he starts out the first several verses and he likens it in a sense to a marriage covenant because there is a law of sin and death. We'll talk about that in the next episode. There's a law of sin and death that has been held and has held our, our members, our bodies, our whole self, our whole person, in chains and enslaved us into bondage. And that is like a married couple who are bound by God's law of covenant marriage. And so he's saying here that according to God's design, the husband and the wife are bound in covenant by that law before the Lord as long as they are each alive or as long as the one is alive. Now, if the husband dies or if the wife dies, the other then is free to marry again without it being an adulterous situation. If they married again or had an affair outside of that union while they're both still alive, then it's adultery and it is sinful. But when that man or woman dies, they are then free to marry someone else. So that's what he's talking about here. In essence, he's saying the law, so to speak, is like our husband. And we are now, through Jesus Christ, he has caused us to die to that law. It's like that old power source. We no longer are plugged into that. 
That law now has no more bondage on us. It has no more control or power over us. We are dead to that law through Jesus. And by him doing that for us, it frees us now to become the bride of Christ without any shame. And now we can bear fruit for him. So the law is kind of like the husband in our flesh. We were doing it. We were trying to follow our flesh. It was almost like we were relying on our own resources, our own righteousness, etc. But it had no power, nothing that could help us overcome the sin nature. He's already shown us earlier, and we've talked about this way back in chapter four and in earlier chapters, earlier episodes, where we looked at the fact that the law was powerless powerless to save us, powerless to set us free. That's why they had to keep coming back and doing the sacrifices. It proved to us that we cannot justify ourselves. We cannot save ourselves. We need a Savior, and God has provided for that need. So he's telling us here that at that time, our fruit and our end brought us nothing but death, pain, suffering. But now, Verse 6, he says that we have been delivered from the law. We've died to it. Hallelujah. So that we should serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. The newness brought on by the power of the Holy Spirit, God's grace poured out upon us, not in dead, dry religion not in keeping of law and keeping of rules and doing rituals, not in religiosity. That's the letter that Paul is talking about here. Rules, regulations, those things kill us. They have no power, they have no life in them, and they have no victory in them. Just try it if you haven't already. I mean, I I don't encourage that. I'm, I'm being facetious here. But if you are trying to earn your salvation, You'll never have peace because you never know, have you done enough? Or did you screw up now and and blow it all, all the other times that were good? Did it cancel them all out? I mean, you'll never have assurance of your salvation. There will always be that struggle. You can't know for sure. All of those things are bound in that letter of the law, in trying to do it on your own. And it has no life and no power and no victory. But he says here that we are now to serve in the newness of the Spirit. The Spirit is what gives the life. The Spirit is living. The Spirit is overcoming. The Spirit is powerful and able to set us free. The Holy Spirit of God is able to teach us. The Holy Spirit of God is able to enable us to overcome the sinful nature. And we're going to talk a good bit about that in the next episode. So in verse 7 through 12, he again, Paul is making sure that he clarifies everything. So here he makes sure that we don't misunderstand what he's saying about the law. He says, so what good is the law? Well, he says the law is very good because its purpose is to help us see that we needed Jesus. Its purpose was to convict and show us the right standard 
And then we have to judge ourselves by that standard and say, whoa, wait a minute, I'm not measuring up. I can't do this. I can't do this on my own. I need salvation. I need a savior. It makes us aware of the fact that we are missing this. And in doing so, there could be even more temptation and more deception and more condemnation. It's piling upon us. The law, verse 10 tells us, the good word, its intent is better. Its intent was good. But in reality, it's producing death. Why? Because we cannot live up to it. It's not the law's fault. The fault is our sin nature and our sin and our sin choices. We are the problem there. But it has not been become death to us, according to verse 13. We know that the law was a good thing, but we are carnal, sold under sin. We are slaves of sin. We are the sinful ones. And so Paul is telling us here, that we we don't make it, we don't always make it, and the struggle is real even after we become saved. Let's consider this. In verse 18, Paul writes here, For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. Jesus addressed that. Let's look at what Jesus had to say. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 41. In Matthew chapter 26, this is when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane praying and the disciples had fallen asleep. And it says this in verse 40 and 41. Then he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, What? Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Jesus had taught them through his words and through his example that they needed to pray and seek the Lord. Jesus was teaching them here that, yes, the spirit is willing, but our flesh is weak still. Our flesh is where the struggle is, in our mind, in our soul, and in our in our bodies, in our flesh. And so Paul is saying here, and Jesus is telling us, that yes, there is the will to do it, but will alone is not enough. That's part of what Paul is teaching us here in chapter 7. You know, there are many times people have tried to overcome alcohol or smoking or whatever else it may be. And they have tried to conjure up enough willpower and they've tried to do it on their own through their own willpower. And that does not ultimately produce lasting results. We can't overcome sin through our own willpower. The spirit is willing. The will is there, perhaps, but the flesh is weak. And so we need help. So in verse 18 and 19 of chapter 7 of Romans, Paul is just honestly addressing that. He's being honest about it. And he says, I want to do the right thing, but I keep failing. 
I, I have not yet attained it. I can't overcome this thing in and of myself. And so he tells us in verse 21 through 24 there that he recognizes there are competing laws at work, competing natures at work. They are warring inside each Christian because we want to stay free and clear and live in victory of all of the things that God has delivered us from. But the struggle is real. Now, understand this. Temptation will come. But now you have a choice to be able to overcome that. And so let's see how Paul resolves this in verse 25. He says in verse 24, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? In other words, what help can I find? Is there anybody that can help me overcome sin and temptation and live the life that I truly want to live for Jesus Christ, being his bond slave? Paul has been very transparent and very real in chapter 7 about the struggle. But notice he does not end this chapter on a gloomy note. He tells us, yes, there is an answer, and there's going to be much more to come on that in the next episode. But he says in verse 25, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Do you see? Jesus is not just the one who saves us. He's not just the one who forgives us. He's not just the one who redeems us. He's not just the one who calls us out. He is also the one who helps us by the gift of the Holy Spirit and the grace that is provided for us on a daily basis. Jesus supplies the need that we have, and he is always there. We can call upon him. He will answer us. He will help us, and he will teach us. And so the more we get to know Jesus through the word of the living God, and through prayer and spending time with him in prayer, discussing life, doing life with him. Do you know that's what Emmanuel means? God living with us, God with us. And he's doing life with us. He said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. So he helps us through these struggles. We have a part to play, but he is right there to help us. And the more we learn of him, the stronger we become in our Christian walk and as his disciple, and the more we will see victory in our life. It is available to us, and it is through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Praise be to God. I pray that this has been a blessing to you, and Lord willing, you can join us again for future episodes of Truth Tidbits. God bless you. In Jesus' name, amen.